Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of People Make the Difference, the Lorien podcast. We bring together the best guests from across HR, TA, technology, and people-related functions to talk all about talent acquisition, talent management, industry insights, and much more with the aim to give you, our listeners, an insight into what the best organisations do to acquire and look after the people that make a difference within their organisations. In this episode, I'm lucky to chat to Head of Resourcing, Chris Bleakley, all about the role of Head of Resourcing. What is it? What does the day-to-day look like? How do you even get into that role in the first place and what the future of that position looks like? Chris has just recently uh, finished an assignment at Nationwide, um, and I'm really grateful to Chris for his time in um, talking to me throughout this episode. If you have any questions, if you'd like to be a guest, if you've got any requests for guests, please contact me at solutions at lorienglobal.com. Take care. Bye-bye. Brilliant. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for um, agreeing to chat with me today. Um, I've done a few of these these chats recently with people that I know quite well, like yourself, and it's always a little bit, it always feels a little bit weird asking for, for introductions yeah. from someone that you know quite well. But would you mind giving our listeners an introduction to you? how you got started in the in the resourcing industry, um, a bit of a career overview, and, and tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, if that's okay. Yeah, so, um, well, my name's Chris Bleakley. Um, I am currently, and I'll come back to this, the Director of Resourcing at Nationwide Building Society. So I, like lots of people in the resourcing or recruitment world, had absolutely no intention of being part of that world when I started out in life. Um, I did a degree in English Literature, and I went on to work in a thing I'm not even sure exists anymore, which is media sales uh, in the newspaper industry uh, back in the 90s. Um, and then, like a lot of people, fell into being a recruitment consultant. And I started off being an IT recruitment consultant, as I think so many of us did. Um, and eventually that sort of transmogrified into working within RPO and outsourcing and working for clients. So kind of selling, implementing and then running RPO solutions for a number of different organisations. Um, lots of which were in the financial services uh, market, but some of which weren't. So in telecoms, in social housing, uh, in pharma um, and, and tech. Um, and then I kind of moved out of being a service provider and into an in-house role at um, the Challenger Bank, Aldermore, where I was responsible for um, uh, all recruitment and resourcing, but also other elements of, of HR. I joined the HR leadership team for the first time. So. I also looked after uh, leadership development um, and culture, culture surveys and all that kind of stuff. So it was a, it was a broader role and exciting and new a new organisation. And then um, left Eldermore uh, four and a bit years ago and joined Nationwide. So at Nationwide, again, I'm part of the, um, uh, the leadership team, the HR leadership team reporting to the CPO. And my remit there is all of resourcing. So that includes all perm or contingent. But I guess, and we'll come on to this, I guess the role has become much broader than that to include you know, traditional areas like brand, but also areas like IND um, and strategic workforce planning and kind of some of those areas that I think are far more strategic and forward facing than perhaps the sort of role I do now started off being. Uh, but right now, uh, we've just been through a programme, which means we've we've made some changes within, within uh, HR. Uh, which means I've transitioned a lot of the work I do into a couple of different areas, which means I'm going through a process of leaving Nationwide. Uh, and in fact, right now, you're asking me what I'm doing right now. Right now, I'm um, burning lots of garden rubbish in the back garden, quite literally on gardening leave whilst uh, whilst working out what it is I'd, uh, I'd like to do next. 
this is why I love these conversations, Chris, because I find out something new about about people I've known a while. I did an English lit degree, and I oh, think right, okay. I wish I'd taken the work ethic I've got now to me back in those days. Because I remember being, I've got to read these two books in a week. Oh, no <laughs> chance. Yeah. yeah, it seems such hard work at the time to <laughs> yeah, to, to, to read a book. Um, there'll be lots of people I think listening uh, that will be thinking, how do you go? Because you've had two great roles now at Aldermore and Nationwide yeah. how did you make the transition from being kind of RPO side agency side into the role that that you know you're now in how did that kind of transition happen for you because it's a role I think a lot of people would like to do but um, how did that how did that happen was it just an opportunity that, that kind of came out of nowhere or was it a bit of a plotted move from you to, to do that well I'd like to I'd like to pretend it was uh, really well planned I think I think two things I think if you and people will know this uh, if you work within an RPO type environment or any kind of outsourced environment whether you call it MSP now whatever else but an outsourced environment for HR services of any sort but in particular uh, recruitment and resourcing which which as I sort of hinted at earlier is is becoming more more strategic more integrated into the business you inevitably spend a lot of time with the client. In fact, quite often you're white labeled and you effectively are the client. You are Barclays, you are Lloyds, you are nationwide. Uh, and actually, if you're working in the right way, you should be part of one whole team. So it sort of feels like you're you're on the business side as opposed to the service provider side. And I think you you you're you start to you start to operate in a way which means that people who work within that business think, oh, this is somebody we might want to employ on our side of the fence, so to speak. Now, that didn't happen to me necessarily in my clients, but I was headhunted twice by organisations, Oldermore being the first, Nationwide being the second, because of some of the experiences I had as a manager, stroke leader, stroke SME within the resourcing and recruitment world. The fact that I'd actually been a service provider wasn't a hindrance. In fact, in many ways, it helps because, and you'll know this, Darren, you know, whatever the relationship you've got with people, if they are your client, you treat them as a client in a good way you're trying to provide the best service at the best best price point and i've taken that way of thinking internally so when i'm just because i work for nationwide doesn't mean suddenly i don't don't care about the people that work for nationwide i should be treating them as my internal clients and i think you get that learning from you know back in the old days as an it recruitment consultant you know phoning people up and trying to sell them opportunities through to providing professional uh outsourced services so so i think i don't think that transitions as as hard as it sounds i think actually you've got all the right skills to transition into an in-house role um if you've worked within those kind of professional outsourcing services organizations like 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 lorian for example that's such an interesting perspective and, and so true isn't it is that like you say it's not that big of a leap in fact a big point of difference is if you carry on behaving the same as you would have done if you were an external provider but in-house yeah. then that's going to give you that point of difference and that that quality yeah. differentiator yeah the, 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 and, and the, the you know frankly the, the thing that makes the difference when you do move over is that actually you are then the decision maker so you can you can do all of those that you, know, you can use all of your skills to try and influence or sell concepts or you know bring you new ways of working or new ways of leadership or new ways of thinking but ultimately if you've got you know, if you've got the right kind of role, then actually you're able to make those decisions yourself because you are you are providing those services internally 
you know you can decide which which uh, provider you want to work with you can decide where you're going to focus you can work out how you're going to align what you do to the to the organization's strategy that's the bit that that sort of tips it over the edge for me to being the kind of space i like to work in yeah you you've got all that the interesting stuff you're doing anyway but you can make some decisions and almost create something in your own yeah. image and to your own ideas a little bit yeah. which is really exciting for people yeah cool Thank, thanks chris i think that's really going to be useful for people to know that actually if your role is the kind of thing they aspire to in the future get into that client facing rpo space develop your way from there and, and then you can switch I, what i'm oh, sorry sorry John, i was gonna say i'd almost argue that coming from that way into the sort of role that i do now is gives you a broader understanding of the market and the external market and understanding internal clients than perhaps if you'd come through a far more traditional HR route. I mean, the interesting thing is, as as is often the case, I think there's sometimes a view that, you know, that in many ways, um, generalist HR and some of those other HR specialisms are kind of the more important HR ones, whereas resourcing sometimes takes a bit of a backseat. That to me has fundamentally changed over the last few years, right? So, you know, strategic resourcing, if it's not number one, it's in the top two things that most CEOs are thinking about right now in terms of their organization. So I really think it's pushed our discipline or our disciplines to the top of the tree. And I think that it'll now attract more people from generalist HR roles, which you perhaps didn't before. Whereas the expertise in reality sits with those people who've worked in a broader external provider, I would suggest. Yeah, you get to see across. 500 clients rather than the, the yeah. one you work with every yeah. day. Yeah, know the market, yeah. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Um, so the role of head of resourcing then, yeah. for those who who may not know, what does that look like day to day? What's What are the key responsibilities? What What does that role like look like for, for you? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. We're, we're always in a, in a sort of state of trying to understand what to call the job I do, right? Is it director of resourcing? Is it talent attraction? Is it talent? You know, that's another way of defining is, you know, depending on whether you define talent as being talented individuals or all the people that work in your organization. So I think broadly speaking, they mean the same thing, but but it depends where you work as to what that role entails. And let's be honest, you know, in very simple terms, my job is to recruit or make sure that the organization I work for has the best and most diverse workforce to do what the organization needs now and what it's going to need to do in the future. And that's in very simple terms. And actually, maybe even the word recruit is the wrong word to use because it's not just about recruitment, it's about the deployment of different sorts of resource. I think that the change in the last few years has gone from the role has gone from being an operational role where you know people give you orders for recruiting 10 of these, 100 of these, 50 of these through to one whereby you're trying to define the skills that the organization has now and the skills it's going to need in the future and where the gap is <clears throat> and what programs of work you're going to need to deploy to fill that gap. Now, I know we might end up talking about strategic workforce planning later, but the big changes in moving from operational the now through to a more forward facing role, um, which could include multiple forms of resource whether it is contingent or permanent, traditional temps, emerging talent, outsourcing, you know, it's about needing the skills, not the individuals, if that makes sense. And in my particular case at Nationwide, you know, that is, or, or for the moment, um, yeah, that's exec hiring, that's permanent hiring, that's tech hiring, 
that's what I would refer to as frontline or retail hiring for the contact centre and, and branch network. It's emerging talent programmes. And then underlying that, it's the um, all of the, the sort of um, the, the risk management of that. Things like um, um, pre-employment screening and what we would call a dispensation process to work out whether people can or can't start work at Nationwide. Visa sponsorship, you know, all of the things that, that the policies and the procedures that pin down redeployment, the things that pin down uh, what what resulting does in a kind of professional as a professional discipline. And then on top of that, you've got um, contingent, whether it's statement of work, whether it's temp, whether it's contractors um, and then brand. Um, within Nationwide, I've got my own DNI team, so they're looking at how we improve the way that we recruit and bring people into the organisation from different, more diverse backgrounds. And then you've got strategic workforce planning and the data and the analytics and the stuff that sits behind that. So back in the olden days, you know, you had a recruitment team and you recruited people based on orders. Now it's far more sophisticated, I would suggest, as a discipline, as a role, and much, much broader, depending on the organisation. But I think that's that's where the role should be now. And that's certainly where my role at, um, at Nationwide was at. And as you know, Darren, that was delivered through a kind of combination of folks. So there's probably, I mean, let's say there's 110 people in the team, but that team, and it is one team, is made up of um, nationwide employees. It's made up of people from Impelum, largely Lorien, supporting with the outsource, uh, the, the delivery of our, um, the actual recruitment, so the, the perm and the temp recruitment. Um, uh, and and those people should be part of the broader team. You know, they are, they are white label, they are nationwide folk, and we also work with AMS, as you know, for some of the contingent stuff. So it's 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 a mixed bag of the team, but you bring together those different um, those different folk into one team to deliver a service across the organisation as a whole. So, and I would I would have thought that most organisations have some element of a mixed team, but I would hope try and point them in the same direction, in the same way, with the same kind of values and sort of strategic direction. I, I talk a lot about um, the solution that we we put together at Nationwide because I, I thought it was quite groundbreaking at its time because, as you mentioned, you, you got us on board to be the engine, I guess, yeah. the recruitment engine. Yeah. But I talk to people a lot about the, um, like the strategic layer of resourcing partners that you had and how actually take outsourcing your engine meant that you could task people with making really good strides in things like brand edni workforce planning and so on yeah. um that's really interesting that that answer chris because when i speak to to our md david he says what you don't understand is is that the, the weight of all that sits with you all the time and i imagine it's, it's the same for you isn't it kind of you set the strategy you set the, how you want resourcing how you want people to come in and be managed within the organization and then it's broken up into all these different styles but at any one time you're carrying that kind of weight of that in the back of your mind about yeah. about something like a compliance check or about yeah. you know a new campaign and audits or whatever like else it might be yeah and and, and i think and, and in fact you know my job should be that, that as, as a representative for what we do more broadly at, at a leadership level so it's bringing that conversation into the uh hr leadership team and more broadly you know i, I think if you've not got at, in my job, if you've not got access to senior leadership to the rest of the senior leadership team, then it's not set up right. You, know, you need to have that because you need to have those conversations. And frankly, 
the reason it's so important to have that engine working, let me use a very basic example. If I didn't have, uh, if I wasn't filling the jobs in our front line, in our contact centres and our branch network, right? That's not happening. I haven't got time to do anything else because that's all anybody's interested in. If we're not serving our members, well, what's the point? So when you've got that engine running really well, as I think we have done at the moment, you know, we've got ongoing fulfillment over 100% for probably coming up to a year now. The work that your guys are doing means that we've then got the time to spend looking at the things that we think are strategically important, longer term skills needs, um, uh, you know, diverse interview panels, um, brand, looking at the future brand. Um, it, if you haven't, if you haven't, if you're not delivering what you need to deliver as a basic, you, you're not going to have the time to be able to deliver on those things which everybody talks about being important and strategic, but all for, but then forget about when you haven't got enough people in the contact centre. So that's why having that engine is is incredibly important to give you the capacity to be strategic. Yeah, it's so true. I think I think we've together and, and what you've put in place is a really mature model. Um, what's the kind of what's the head of resourcing role 3.0 going to look like? Do you think how is it going to evolve in the next few years? If if at all, you might not think that it will. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I think it will do, and and I think I think it's going to evolve in a number of different ways. So first up, I think as I mentioned before, I suspect it'll be a more visible, more involved and more strategic role, right? You know, whatever you want to call it, it's not the head of or the director of recruitment. That kind of feels too, too one-dimensional. It's far more about the provision of resource or the provision of capability or skills across the organisation as a whole. So I think, I think it'll broaden as a role. As I mentioned, I think the concept of strategic resourcing, when we always used to talk about total resourcing, which may or may not be the kind of fantasy world that we're all aiming for. But I think that it'll be more strategic and less operational. And then, yeah, there's all of the challenges without wanting to kind of, you know, run through all of the other questions that you might have, because there's lots of other things I'm thinking about in the future. And that is whether it is dealing with the concept of hybrid working, whether it's dealing with the concept of, you know, non-traditional candidates people who want to work in a different way whether it's dealing with a new generation that don't necessarily want a career and a pension working in a branch network whether it's understanding what ai is really going to do for us or whether it is going to make a difference we're all talking a lot about it at the moment so i think increasingly the trend of the job i do at the moment becoming more forward-facing more future-facing more strategic is one of those things and that encapsulates a lot that we might come on to talk about and the second thing is it really should be a proper leadership role right it shouldn't be somebody who's an ops person only who is in there turning the handle always disappearing down into the weeds right it should be a person who's setting a vision and a direction and a culture because if you haven't got that culture and you haven't got the right behaviors and you haven't got the right attachment to the organization and what it's trying to do within the team that's recruiting people into the business or bringing people into the business, then that's a bit of a failure from the off, right? So I, I genuinely think that, that leadership is incredibly important in the role. As I said before, is, is access to other leaders. So if I can't speak to the CEO, I don't think I've got the right job. Yeah. yeah. 
that yeah. stakeholder buy-in is critical for you to get yeah. the investment for the, the changes or, or what you want to do. Well, and it should be, shouldn't it? I mean, bringing yeah. people in and giving people a career, how is that not in the top well, five, it, if not the top three objectives of a, of a CEO or, uh, or MD or whatever? It, yeah, the, the role itself, whatever you want to call it, whether it's talent attraction or resourcing or talent or whatever, there's a m- multiple different ways. Of, and, and, and interestingly, I suspect we'll come up with a new one in the not too distant future, which will incorporate director of future skills. Who knows, right? Although that sounds a bit too learning and development, maybe. But I, I think the important thing for me, and I think if, if I was advising anybody taking the role like mine, you know, if it doesn't, in a larger organisation, report into the CPO or the HRD, it's the wrong role, right? It's not the strategic resourcing is not being taken seriously enough if it isn't reporting into an XGO member. You know, in a smaller organisation, it, it, it may report into the to the CEO, but certainly if it's not at that top table in the HR leadership team, it's not being taken seriously enough. Um, and and what's your you know what is your opportunity then to drive through? Uh, DNI initiatives, for example, how seriously will they be taken, and how much ability have you got to make a difference? Yeah, I love it. I think that's great advice. And and you're right. If yeah, if building the peak the, the careers of the people within your organisation isn't the most important thing or one of, then yeah, maybe it's maybe it's not the right organisation for you. And, and the other bit as a coder to that, Darren, I guess is I didn't touch on then the concept of. You know, internal talent because clearly you know a large part of what we what we do at nationwide is also about internal moves internal hiring internal opportunities um and things like the implementation of an internal talent marketplace where you can see what opportunities there are but you can also see what the gap is between you now and being able to do that opportunity is and then you can be pointed at the learning that you would need to complete to be eligible or able to do that role so it is as much about the internal flow and that internal flow we've seen change hugely recently because when we went completely location agnostic for a period, you could apply for a job in risk in the head office in Swindon if you worked in the brand in Chester in the northwest, right? You didn't have to move. And that flow creates a very different um a very different dynamic within an organization because on the one hand isn't it great that you've now got these opportunities that flow around for everybody which is good secondly suddenly you've got you know 40 50 people a month leaving the branch network to do something else which means you need to replace all of those people in the branch network and you can't replace those people anywhere they need to be in the branch in Chester that's where the branch is so yeah those are those are some of the the, the knock-on effects of that I think but yeah sorry the, my point was internal talent flow development opportunities clearly is as important as external hiring in and that should form a part of this role in your um in your next role chris putting aside whatever kind of challenges the individual company may have yeah. what do you think the the biggest challenge on the horizon for that role maybe so you touched on a few challenges there is it ai is it hybrid working what what do you foresee as the kind of big challenge over the next 12 months or so so if you were to ask me the biggest challenge in this role at the moment um and there are there there are broader challenges i think that 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 we're all going to have to face into but a challenge for a nationwide or a similar organization i think is the is the effective and ongoing hiring of frontline 
retail, contact centre, branch network, employees. Um, and that's because um, I think we're, we're, we're moving into a, a world where people think differently about the jobs that they're going to do. You know, people doing those jobs are, are, in, are in high demand, but we're not just competing with, I don't know, Lloyd's or you know, other financial services organisations. We're competing with a whole raft of other industries, whether it's Amazon or whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, non-financial services organisations, delivery drivers. The, the difference, the shift has been from career and a pension, which in many ways sounds incredibly anachronistic now, to what are you going to pay me right now? I need to maximise my earnings right now because the right now is really important to me because I'm not thinking about next year or the year after or the year after that. It's cost of living today. I need to afford to feed my family, to pay the mortgage, which is increasing the you know, energy bills. Great, you're going to give me a pension in 30 years, right? I need more money now. So the the whether you want to call it loyalty or turnover or anything else, why why shouldn't somebody stay in an organisation for you know 20 years? When the opportunity for them is to move across the road and get paid more money next week. So how do you a make sure you're rewarding people in the right way and b retaining their um, what's the word their cultural cohesion to your organisation? What is the difference between if you're doing a customer service related job and you're able to do it from home in some instances for nationwide and just picking up Santander, right? Different coloured brands. What? Why would you want to do one? over the other. So I think that the, the very simple operational challenge is how do you make sure that you've got the right people with the right kind of um, uh, you know, reflecting the right mix of society working in your your branches or your contact centers or wherever the people who engage with the customer or in our case member. That's a really difficult challenge. And on top of that, the cost of living crisis, I don't think people in in um in kind of in some industries realize this means that a lot of the people that apply for those jobs have had multiple jobs in the past so there's lots of referencing to do but they've also got debt like we've all got debt but they've got debt now if it's not controlled we're a regulated industry so how do you make sure that there's a enough people and b enough people who've got controlled debt that can start in your organization and that aren't a risk or that don't fail some of your internal um you know pre-employment pre check so it, 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 it's not a particularly sexy answer right you know it's it's not but it's, if it's a genuine challenge it, it, it's the it's it is the reality and if you don't recruit people into those frontline roles and to those volume roles who are providing you know, who are literally the front line of your business they are the people talking to the customers um then maybe you don't realize that you know those are major problems. You're fighting against options across all industries, yeah. all pay ranges, with all forms of flexibility. And they're not easy things jobs. Like, um, <laughs> things like delivery, not delivery drivers, but like Amazon doing Amazon deliveries yeah, and all these exactly. things. The landscape across that is huge now, isn't it? Yeah. So, so without, yeah, there are bigger answers that relate to, and maybe we'll come on to this, that, that, that relate to you know, sort of um, hybrid flexibility diversity you know certain tech skills not existing in the uk anymore i mean the interesting thing is you know it talks about different forms of resource one of the questions we've got is we're you know we're running out of software engineers so i'm responsible for visa sponsorship we've got 
we've got loads of people on visa sponsorship from um, uh, from Southeast Asia. They're brilliant people. They're really good at what they do. But ultimately, isn't the isn't the option there to to outsource some of that and focus your actual permit hiring on a different skill set where you're bringing people in from other parts of the UK? Who knows, right? But but you know, the, the, those challenges of certain tech skills that was always the bit that people talked about. But I think that's going to significantly change in the next few years when we start to rethink how we how we get those skills. We don't necessarily need to employ them, especially as I don't know what the average tenure of a tech employer is now down you 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 might do this what two years yeah it varies massively depending on the discipline like software engineering is like 18 months yes you know some some maybe less hands-on is a bit longer it's going up a little bit but yeah it's still short and, and yeah, think, very think of short. this right if i if i think about the kind of rookie turnover or the turnover within six months of some of the those retail frontline contact center type roles right that's high. Tech is high. Nationwide's used to an average tenure of a decade. Yeah, you know. the the churn is is a well. Do you know what? I, th I don't know if I, this is just anecdotal. I need to look in the data, Chris. But it feels like the churn has slowed a bit so far yeah. in twenty twenty three. Not so not that, hugely. Maybe like just a little bit less. I I think some of that is about stability, right? So yeah, if. You know, if you know you've got to uh, remortgage next year, you know, if you know that, you know, or if you're unsure about the cost of anything right now, whether it's food or energy going up, down, depending on world events, then you know, even changing job for a higher salary has risks with it. You know, if you know you're in a job and you're going to stay in that job for a significant or for a period of time and you're going to get paid <laughs> on time, the organisation is not going to disappear down a hole or make hundreds of redundancies. That's that's worth something, um, especially for I'm going to kind of call it that kind of middle ground of people in the middle of their career. I think that's less the case if you're jumping around in some of those, you know, more entry level roles that we talked about. Um, but yeah, I can, I can see that being a factor of at least having some control over something in the world that we live in at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you've touched on it a few times and just. I mean, I don't know if I've ever told you this before. It was around about June, July 2020, wasn't it? And when you guys at Nationwide said you were going to that location agnostic approach, yeah, I can't say how happy I was. It was such a big, bold move. And to my mind and my knowledge, you guys were the first to kind of publicly say that you were going to do that. And obviously, you know, you've tweaked it over time, but yeah. that must have been an exceptionally like big moment and a proud moment in your career. But I also know that, in your time in Nationwide, especially in the last three and a half years, has been great strides, not just in like diversity, but also in sustainability as well. I know how big yeah. you guys are in that area. How important were elements like that in, in your role at Nationwide? And was you know, what were the highlights for you in well, over that time period? I mean, if I started with I'll talk about some of the complexities, but straight away a highlight would be the fact that we're as heavily involved as we are in the um ten thousand black interns program. So it's over, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a, the, the, yeah, the concept is that over five years, I think there'd be 2,000 black interns every year across, um, it starts off in London, but across UK-wide industries. Um, and uh, so it started last year was the, the first year which we were involved in. I think we only had, I think we had maybe 40, 40 odd interns in that first uh, cohort. 
and we're about to start uh, or in July, the second cohort will join like be 75 interns. And the plan is for that to be to increase uh, year on year over the next few years. You know, an incredibly brilliant and talented cohort folk last year. This year, I suspect will be no different. Um, and the uh, one of our main aims is how do you translate as many of those people who, who are on an internship into permanent employees? At the very least, you should be giving them brilliant experience with brand on their CV. How do you translate that into jobs for those that want them? Because not all do, not all can. Some are moving on to further education, you know, another degree, for example. Um, but how many of those people can you translate into employees of your of your organisation? And you know that for me has been one of the most important programmes that we've engaged with. Um, and in fact, you know, as I mentioned, I'm I'm you know in the process of leaving Nationwide, but it's one of two or three different projects um, I'm staying close to until I do leave to make sure that that, that it's got the right kind of uh, energy behind it. Um, so that would be a, a real highlight of my whole period of anything, let alone um, DNI. Uh, sustainability type projects. I think two of the things that would stand out for me. One of those is the um, uh, the culture within our own part of the organisation. So within within the resourcing team as a whole, you know, it's a large mixed bag of folk, 110 people or whatever it is from two, three different organisations, and actually having a shared purpose, uh, an ability for people to speak out. You know, a lack of any kind of pretension and authenticity, people who trust each other, you know, everybody performing and pointing in the right direction, irrespective of the, the sort of changes in the world that we've been through over the last couple of years being thrown at them. Kind of, you know, that's not a thing you'd necessarily write on your CV. It's not necessarily a thing you would describe as a project because it's kind of what everybody does. But that for me has been, you know, really important because it also means that everybody thinks it's important that we drive forward with programs like 10,000 Black Indians. Everyone thinks it's important that we have diverse interview panels. You know, those are the sorts of things that, that that people can can get can get behind. And I think culturally aligning yourself to that kind of that way of thinking is important. Um, and finally, you mentioned location agnostic, hybrid and so on. I think like all organisations, you know, we're still wrestling with that. Um, we've got a new CEO, we've got some different ways of thinking. I think lots of people will come to some way of some form of equilibrium. The upside is that I'm a huge well, I'm a huge supporter because right? it means that people, a whole range of different people can apply for jobs at Nationwide who who otherwise couldn't have done. And not just because of where they are, right, physically or logistically. It's not just because they can apply for a job because they're elsewhere in the country. It's also because, you know, they've got caring responsibilities. Yeah. You know, they can't get to an office because they've got a disability, which means they can't do that. So it, it broadens your reach to a whole range of talented people who've got all sorts of different personal circumstances. As I said, it creates some interesting challenges we didn't expect. Suddenly a flow of folk all moving out of one part of the business to do something else. You know, why wouldn't you move to a, to a role which meant you didn't need to be in the branch every day and they paid you more money? Of course you would. You'd do that. But then I've got to replace all those people who've left roles of the branch network. Yeah. So. So it, 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 yeah, sometimes there are interesting consequences that you you don't you don't expect, but yeah, there's no doubt that I think that's the right direction for an organisation organisation to be headed. If you're not offering hybrid of some sort at the moment, I would I would be interested to know whether you're getting the best and most diverse workforce because I suspect you're not. It was just the boldness of it that I absolutely yeah. loved, and tying back into earlier in our conversation. 
you can't be bold and make that decision and push it forward unless you've got that direct line to the CEO. That's right. Yeah, that's where that's, that's the live example of where it of where it really works. Um, your, I would say, Chris, you've you, you've got real in depth knowledge of a subject that a lot of people don't have, and a lot of people are trying to find out about in in workforce planning. Um, would you mind just discussing the importance of that to you and the organisations you work for, and, and what the impact of of doing that kind of activity has been? Because I speak to so many organisations, and all of them say, yeah. "We want help. How do we even get started?" Yeah, and, and I think that I, th I think sometimes it becomes overcomplicated, um, and 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 a real challenge in people's minds. You know, one of the things that really helped, I think, is to have. You do need to think of it as a discipline. And if you're taking it really seriously, you bring somebody in who's an expert in that discipline who can then help a define what you mean by strategic workforce planning. And implement it. I know that sounds super obvious, but I think lots of organisations just try and do it as part of something else. And you know, as you'll know, Dan, we had Mark uh, Jackson who came in and helped build the team and the discipline within within Nationwide. So he was part of my leadership team and played you know an absolutely essential role in in landing the concept of strategic workforce planning and then helping to implement the activity that drove strategic workforce planning. And to be clear, we're not talking about demand planning, right? Everybody does that, well, you should do that. Everybody knows that they need, you know, 10 people this week, 100 people next week, 30 people this week to deal with whatever they've got going on in a particular part of the business. Everybody might have requirements for roles that they need, you know, next week, the week after, the month after. It's all, it's all in the now. Really, I suppose the, the basics of strategic workforce planning are that, you know, a, do you understand what skills you have in your organisations right now? And B, do you know what skills you're going to need in the future? Um, and when you've got the, those two bits of information, there is a gap. And that gap is, we're missing these skills over this period of time. And you then need to work out how you go from the skills you haven't got now to the skills you're going to need in, I don't know, probably three years in the future. Um, and the way we've done that nationwide um, is... From a skills capture perspective, and look, we could talk about this all day, right? Just skills capture is a conversation that could go on for, for weeks. But in very simple terms, we've got a platform called Grow. Um, it's it's part of it is is um, is actually a, um, a a provider called um, um, Bloat. And what they do is enable us to capture the skills of our existing population. Right. So you, Darren, would go in and you would populate that with the skills that you currently have. And they could be technical skills, they could be soft skills in old, in old money. We capture those skills, and, and you, you may do it from just moving your LinkedIn profile, and there's lots of different ways of doing it. But over time, I build up a picture of the skills that exist within my organisation, right? Um, and I can map those out by different functions and by different areas. And you're never going to get 100%, uh, and we're aiming for that. We're probably up to about, I don't know, 40 odd percent at the moment. So on the one hand, it's good to have that baseline. On the other hand, you are looking at the, the strategy of the organisation and trying to work out what skills you're going to need. Now, it's not rocket science. You need to agree what you're going to call skills. So ideally, you want the skills that you're going to be talking about having a name and agreed you know, nomenclature. And then you're going to end up talking to different parts of the business and asking them what skills they need in the future. Now, we did that in two ways. We talked about their existing plan. So, hi, Darren, uh, you're going to need three analysts, four of these, two of these, and one of these. Is that still all right? Yeah, that's right, Chris. Great. 
oh, by the way, I'm also setting up a new department, so I'm going to need these 10 people as well. OK, fine. So, Darren, we've covered that off. What are you going to need in three years' time? What, where do you, you know, what is your, what, how are you aligning to the strategy and what skills are you going to need in three years' time? Now, interestingly, that's the conversation that business leaders find harder to talk about. You know, the first question is, do they know what skills they're going to need in three years' time? But they should be thinking about this now. So it may be over a period of time you need to have that conversation to enable them to go away and think about it. But those knowing what those skills in the future are going to be and know what you've currently got, you've got a trajectory. And then it's a case of coming up with a plan to go from one to the other. And that plan might not just be recruit loads of people. It might be what about these emerging talent programs that need to start now to fulfill those skills in three yeah. years? It might be there's no point in recruiting software engineers in Python because we just can't get them. Outsource it all. Yeah. Now, uh, it might be, well, we don't know how long we're going to need this for, so let's prepare to bring in some contingent workers to do this piece of work. But all strategic workforce planning is to me is having a better view of what the future is and what you're going to need and where you are right now and having a plan between the two. Um, now, speak to Mark or the rest of the team, and I'm sure they'd <laughs> say that is a ridiculously oversimplified view of the world, Chris, but... <laughs> That that's what it is. That's yeah. what it is. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in some of them um, business leader conversations when when you ask what do you need in three years but, when they but, don't know the questions coming. If you think, <laughs> you know, if you think about tech or IT as a, as a good example, if you said to you know an IT director what you need in three years time, the natural quite often people are going to say, well, I need you know let's not talk about numbers of developers or specific skills, and it, it, it might be that you need to start more broadly than that. You know, what are you actually going to be delivering? You know, we're going to be delivering, I don't know, a new way of um, a new way of providing a new online way of providing services to our customers. OK, so th that's the bigger picture. Don't go straight to it's this language or that language. It's what are your five, six, seven or eight strategic ambitions? And can we go down from those into, OK, well, what will you need? What capability or skills will you need to be able to deliver those things? Because they should know their three year strategic roadmap, you would hope. Um, so you need to start them up there and bring them down rather than, oh, I need four project yeah. managers, isn't it? Elevate, the, com elevate yeah. the conversation immediately and come back. Do you think the most crucial like tip or advice you would give people is to have that kind of dedicated role as you, as you had with Mark and have got with Mark to kind of, this is your and job to, to look yeah, at this stuff? Yeah, yeah. so, so I, think, I think the two or three things. One is it, 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 you need somebody who is responsible for the um, the discipline, um, and 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 that person, and yeah, you know, Mark's team's not huge, but he's got people who can support him in the activity required or developing the activity. But then more broadly, um, a lot of resourcing functions will have whether you call them, you know, resourcing business partners, we call them strategic uh, resourcing partners. It was their because your guys are doing all the delivery. As a strategic resourcing manager. You can go and do this. You know, Mark and his team will teach you what, how the pro, you know, how we describe skills, how we capture them, how to capture them in the same way, and how you should have a conversation with people to to get them to understand how important um, strategic workforce planning is and what it means and what it's all about. And maybe you know, the SME, the expert, Mark or a member of the team might join those strategic resourcing managers in the first instance to get people excited about what the future might look like. But then on a regular basis, quarterly, 
those strategic workforce, uh, sorry, those um, uh, those SRMs, those strategic resourcing managers, they are having continual dialogue with those leaders. And, and A, that gets the leaders to start thinking about it and think, yeah, maturing their thinking. B, frankly, it means that you've got your resourcing team plugged into all the senior leadership and having conversations at the right level, not just talking about whether they want two business analysts. Thanks for that, Chris. You've been so generous of your time and I've already gone quite a bit over that. Um, I, I really want to ask this question. What's what's next for you? What are you looking for next? What appeals? What What's going to be the next move, do you think? Well, I, I think it, I think something similar. And what I mean by that is uh, I've talked a few things a few times about some of these things throughout our conversation. So one, I think the the the, the ownership of strategic resourcing or oversight of the whole piece is is absolutely fascinating and that's what i've really enjoyed at nationwide and that's what i'd like to do again in the future um and i think secondly as i mentioned before my role anybody doing my role needs access to be to the top table right so you need to be reporting to a cpo and hrd and that again is really important to me and then i, I guess the other two things that are important are one that the organization has the right cultural outlook, the right view of the way it treats its employees, or it needs someone to help change that to be the right kind of cultural outlook, which is really important to me from a leadership perspective, and that it's serious about its um its DNI strategy, or it needs someone to come and help it drive its DNI strategy. I'm not sure that industry matters necessarily. You know, as somebody who's worked in financial services, you know, I was a material risk taker, so an MRT, which which you know, is, is useful from a from an FS perspective, but you know, working for someone who actually makes something has always been appealing because there's so few organisations that actually do that at the moment. Um, so I think it, you know I'm really open-minded about it, um, and I've I, you know, I've started to have conversations with a few folk, but um, I, I didn't want to narrow it down other than those those particular yeah. uh, those particular thoughts. And look, the, the challenge is going to be you want the challenge, you know, you want to know what to help work on hybrid and flexible working. You want to help on with how we might look at what I would describe as non-traditional candidates, different ways of re recruiting people. AI, right, we've only just briefly touched on that. That's gonna you know, revolutionize at least elements of way, the way we recruit, whether it's you know, AI's ability to help you write a CV or shift or, or sift CVs or to answer questions or even to whether you need the job at all, right? Talking about different skills of the future, AI is going to play a part of that conversation. So, you know, I probably straight off answering your question a little bit there, but um, yeah, those are those are I think some of the trends that I'd be interested in exploring. But but it's more about the type of organisation that it is necessarily it being a bank or a financial services organisation. Good example. to have some parameters, but good to be open minded as well. I'm yeah. really looking forward to to see what you do next, Chris. Um, Final question for me then, then I will I will release yeah. you back to back to burning stuff in the garden. <laughs> um, you'll have heard the phrase "people make the difference" many many yes. times from from David, um, and that's what this this podcast is called. People make the difference. Yeah. Obviously, there'll be tons and tons of people that have made a difference in your life, but could you tell us just about one in particular? Well, I, I, I thought about this, and it's it's there are lots. There always are lots. I wondered whether I wondered whether there was there was um, Two very briefly. I won't. I won't spend long talking about them. But no, one okay. of them was much earlier, in much earlier in my, not career in my life. Um, was um, Mrs. Osborne. 
Um, Mrs Osborne was uh, was my uh, high school uh, English teacher, um, who was uh, uh, fearsome, inspiring, and interesting, all combined into one. And I think, interestingly, you know, she gave gave me a love of of literature, of reading, but also of of expressing myself. So. You know, I've always thought that a well-crafted email, a well-crafted letter or note or anything else, you know, communication is absolutely essential in, in, in any industry and perhaps more so in ours than many others I can think of. And I, and I really think that, that, that she got me interested in being able to articulate ideas and concepts and thoughts and feelings. And that led on to me, as we discussed briefly earlier, doing a degree in English, which isn't necessarily relevant to any particular role that I've done, but it certainly gave me a grounding of skills, a grounding of, you know, um, being able to communicate with people. And I think I could trace that back. I probably trace that back to, to Mrs. Osborne, bless her. Um, and then secondly, far more recently, when I left the, um, and look, I've had some brilliant leaders and managers in my time. Um, uh, but when I moved out of RPO and kind of service provision into kind of within the, within an organisation, I um, my my CPO HRD at Aldermore was a lady called Ali Humphreys, who took a little bit of a gamble on me because my background was recruitment really, but the role she um, offered me uh, was much broader than that and included. You know, uh, L and D, leadership development, leadership programs, culture, you know, cultural insight, um, and and I was sat on the the HR leadership team with a much more you know input into much broader subjects than the one I was theoretically the expert in. Um, and she she I think well, I'm pretty sure I know recruited on the basis of the kind of person that she was talking to and their potential and what they could bring to the broader team. Um, and talked about filling your bucket. Come and do this job and fill your bucket, fill your bucket with skills and experience. And when it's full, you leave and you move on to do something else. Um, and A, that was inspiring, but perhaps more so was the fact that her style of engagement and leadership, it was authentic, it was genuine, it was um, non-formal, it was non-corporate, it was real. Um, and it's something that I kind of, learned from uh from her and have probably put into practice over the last 10 years um so yeah Ali no they're uh, great great to have two examples from two different areas of your life like that and yeah. it's amazing how one person can say something to you years ago and it just stay with you throughout yeah. throughout life isn't it yeah, magic, the magic of yeah. teachers yeah. thanks so much for that Chris I know you've given me more than more than I asked for in terms of time but really <laughs> enjoyed it and Looking forward to hopefully seeing you soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Darren. Nice to chat.